Thanks for listening to this Word in Your Ear podcast. If you'd like to get early access to all our productions ad-free, priority booking for our live events, and to take part in our weekly quiz, go to patreon.com slash wordinyourear for more details. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. You're listening to a podcast from The Word. In the tradition of the Windmill Theatre whose proud boast was that they never closed throughout the Second World War. <laughs> Word of your ear will not be put off, will not be put off by pandemics or whatever. Uh, we continue in, in our kind of quest to bring you the finest in, in kind of musical and literary entertainment rather than strippers, which is what the Windmill Theatre mainly <laughs> dealt in. And so we're delighted to be able to welcome old friend of the pod, uh, Graham Thompson, to talk about his fantastic uh, new book, uh, Small Hours, uh, The Long, uh, what's it called? The Long Night of John Martin. John Martin, uh, an artist uh, very close to the hearts of no doubt lots of people who, uh, who follow this podcast in its various forms. So here we are. Welcome, Graham. Where do we find you? Hi, guys. Uh, you find me in Edinburgh. Still in uh, lockdown, north of the border. Um, but can I say, you've produced, a, a, since I last saw you, a very John Martin-like beard, actually. It's very impressive, a lockdown beard. This was, was, was his character writing, yeah. Um, yeah <laughs> took on the role. Not too much, I have to say. Um, yeah, the barbers aren't open up here yet, so I'm waiting for next week where we might uh, might have a change of, uh, <laughs> change of style. OK, so let's, let's start with the question of Scotland. Because you're you're uniquely well qualified to write this story. Because John Martin, the first thing about him is that he's not called John Martin, was he? No, he was uh, Ian McGeeky, Ian David McGeeky, and Ian with Ian with with only one eye. It's quite often written as I A I N in the Scottish way, but actually it's I A N. I don't know why, because I think he actually adopted the, the second eye. Who knows why? Um, but yeah, he was born in Surrey. You know, he's a he's a Southern Englishman by birth, um, maybe not by nature, but certainly by birth. And uh, but his you know his parents were these light entertainers. They were opera singers. Uh, his mother was English. His dad was Scottish. And uh, that marriage fell apart very early on in in his life. He was two or three, I think. So, um, and I guess very unusually for that time, which was the early fifties, he you know he went to live with his dad. So he his, his mum stayed in in, in Surrey. 
John, or Ian as he was at the time, went up to live with his father and his father's mother in Glasgow. So that's where he was raised. So I think we can claim him kind of as a Scottish artist, but, but he's, you know, English. And all through his life, there was this kind of dichotomy, I think. Between... I was going to say, yeah, was there a tension throughout his life? Well, I think anyone who's met John, one of the first things he always says, is, you know, his accent was completely off radar. You know, it was, yes. it was all over the shop. And he would talk, he would talk in sort of hard not Glasgow. He would talk in quite refined Scottish. He would talk uh, in Bish Bash Bosh, Danny Thompson, Cockney, East End Cockney. He would talk in Jamaican, you know, when he was with Lee Scratch Perry. Uh, there was a massive amount of identity confusion, I think, um, pretty near the surface. So there was always this... And I think musicians are mimics, you know, they're very good at kind of absorbing sound and he seemed to absorb personalities as well. So he would, you know, he would take on the character of people he was around. But also I think it's this idea of, you know, he would go down to London every summer, he would spend time with his mom, and so probably trying to kind of fit in with that, he adopted this English persona. And How, what, kind of effect, what kind of effect did all that have on him? Because it was a complicated upbringing, wasn't it? As you say, he was kind of abandoned yeah. by his mum in some sense, and he only saw her for a, a couple of weeks or six weeks every summer, and he wasn't even allowed to stay with her because his stepdad had yeah. liked him. So what did he feel... I think there's one point somebody makes the point that that might have turned into, into a bit of a misogynist, the idea that he was... Yeah. Know, he felt he was abandoned by his mum. Was that true? Well, that's what he thought. That's what he claimed, and certainly yeah. Beverly, Beverly Martin, his first wife, said that, kind of put those... You know, drew those dots together. But you know, I suppose there's lots of people who are abandoned by their mother who don't turn into misogynists and violent people. So, you know, who knows? We're not, you know, I can't psychoanalyze them that much. But that was certainly he. Remember, he said to me, you know, that any any character flaws I have, um, you know, are attributable to the divorce of my parents when I was a, I was a kid. That's what he felt. Yeah, was abandoned. And yeah, I mean, he would see her, but. Yeah, as you say, he wasn't allowed. His stepfather didn't let him stay in the house, so he would go and stay with his mother's sister in London. So I think as a young kid, that's probably pretty wounding. Um, but he actually had quite a happy upbringing in Glasgow. You know, he had a huge extended family of aunts and cousins, and he was adored. He was a beautiful-looking boy, and you know, he, he was a, uh, on the surface very happy. I think uh, in in that environment. So you know, who knows? Nature, nurture, and all that. Right, right. You tell that there's one of the fantastic. Uh little vignettes in the book is that when he plays Glasgow quite late in life, his, his father used to turn up, didn't he? And That's right. rather make an exhibition of himself from the store. <laughs> yeah, going on about why has he changed his name? He's got a perfectly good name. That's right. This was, this was yeah, 20 years after the fact. He's still wondering why he's not called Ian McGeeky. And, it, yeah, he's wearing a deer... I think, you know, it's a great image. He's wearing a deerstalker cap and he's wearing t- full tweeds, and he's got a walking stick, and he walks down right to the front of the stalls by the stage, and he says, that's me off, Ian. Uh, I'm off to the pub. Um, good work. <laughs> I'm off your trot. Um, so, you know, and, and, you know there, there, was a, there was a strain of alcoholism in the family. His father, sadly, you know, did suffer from that as well. So, uh, you know, a very eccentric guy, um, and I think there's an element of shame as well in some of that, I suppose. But, you know, John was 40 at that point. Or whatever, you know, it's mad. He's playing with big gigs in the Apollo in Glasgow, and his dad's because <laughs> the, the other things, thing, the other thing yeah. about people who is uh, the children of entertainers is that is the parents are always slightly jealous of them. Mm. Yeah, they always feel I should get some of this attention. I produced this child, you know what I mean? I'm a professional as well. They've always that, so. that's always going and also, and also, you can't even sing properly, you know, you're slurring your words, <laughs> yeah, from, you know, yeah. uh, enunciate boy. Um, there's a bit of that because they're, you know, they're singing Gilbert and Sullivan, and 
in uh, vaudeville. Oh, yeah, because he sends them the first record. He makes the first record when he's 19, and he sends them copies very much to say, I've achieved more than you've ever achieved because you were singers, and where's your album? Yeah, I think so. Definitely a bit of that. Yeah, I think he was very driven at that age. You know, that's probably a little bit off it, yeah. It really struck me how quickly it all happened for him. You know, there's wonderful mm. descriptions of him playing in uh, Clive's uh, Folk Club and uh, in, in, and The Crown in, in, in Scotland, you know, and mm. how quickly the audiences uh, attached themselves to him. Yeah. So what was it about him that made him so special? You know, was it part of the act that he put on, the way he performed? or mm. what, 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 was the, what was the package that connected with him? I think it's a bit of that. I mean, he looked amazing. You know, at that age, he, you know, he had this beautiful kind of curly blonde hair and he was very striking. And I think, you know, he started to write very early. Uh, you know, he didn't. I mean, look at that. Wow. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. <clears throat> um, you know, he started to write because he, he didn't re he wasn't really down with the folk scene in the traditional sense. He didn't want to play, you know, all the kind of classic traditional um, materials. So he was starting to write really quickly. You know, his first gig, I think he played three of his own songs and he'd, he'd only been playing a guitar for a year or so. So, um I think that probably, you know, marked him out a little bit. And he, and he was, you know, he worked really hard. I think, you know, we look at him as this kind of maverick guy coming off the street with his guitar and plonking it down and just knocking it out. But, you know, a lot of people said to me, you know, he would he would restring his guitar every day. He would practice for hours. He'd lock himself in the room. So he was really, really good really quickly as well. Um, and this weird style, you know, this very bluesy kind of guitar style, it was very powerful. It wasn't kind of wishy-washy, you know, it was really quite confrontational what he did so and and he left really quickly you know he outgrew Glasgow within a year and he and he went straight down to London and, and so he was quite ambitious as well quite driven I think so tell us about the meeting with uh, Beverly how that all came together and and the, you know that's a, a key part in the book all the way through mm. the presence mm. or absence of Beverly Martin tell us about that well, of course, she, I mean, she was ahead of him, really. You know, she, she'd already made a few singles and records and she was signed to Joe Boyd's Witch Season stable, you know, which is a quite prestigious thing. Um, she played over in America. She'd been out with Paul Simon and Martin, uh, Simon Garfunkel. She was doing pretty good things already. Um, and then she met John, you know, she, she, she bumped into John. I think it was the Chelsea Arts Club, you know, the, she was, he was playing and she walked in and was like, ooh. Um, and it was this kind of instant chemi chemical reaction between the two of them. And she already had a, a little son called Wesley. Um, and I think very quickly, you know, there's lots of debate about whether John was very cynical about kind of jumping on her bandwagon and, and hitching a ride to where she was going. But I think, you know, he, he'd already made two records as well. Um, so the idea, you know, they very quickly became a couple. And I think it was a natural development from there probably to make music together. So they went off to Woodstock in America. You know, this, this was Beverly's idea, or Joe Boyd's idea for Beverly, which was to go and make a record in America. John was like, yeah, I'll, I'll sign up to that. And he came along kind of as a guitar player and then started writing and started playing and started singing. And, um, you know, we had a, a duo album at the end of it. But I'm not uh, sure. Ever... Do you think they were convincing those records? I never got the impression as no. a kid listening to them that, that they were really about any kind of harmony. I mean, they looked no. like the cover was fantastic, the concept was perfect, but it didn't seem to be like, they, you know, it didn't seem to be collaborative, really. No, I don't think I was just going to say, I don't think it ever really worked because, you know, they wrote individual, individually. John was never in a band. You know, he was never one of these kids who was playing with his mates uh, as a teenager. You know, he was always like, this is my vision for my music. So, um, I think it was quite expedient, probably, and didn't ever work. Um, they sang their own songs. They would kind of chime in on the harmonies. I don't think the vocals ever really kind of connected very well. So 
Although, I mean, you look at the cover of Stormbringer and you think these people are going to rule the world. <laughs> Absolutely. <one day>. Yeah. <laughs> Beautiful. And uh, it didn't fly. So it just didn't. I think people can hear if something doesn't convince because it's not really... But they spent quite a lot of money, didn't they, on those first two mm. records? And so it was the kind of... They sort of had to pay off those records, didn't they? And that had a, a really terrible effect on her career, didn't it? Because she never yeah. could make a record on her own. Is that fair? Partly, but, yeah. Part, I think that was partly the problem because, um, as John Wood said, Joe Boyd never had any problem spending money on a record. So, you know, he was double time for Leave on Helm and flying to Woodstock and getting it mixed in the big studios. So it cost a lot of money. Um, and all that was set against the you know, future royalties. So, I mean, when John started making a bit of money with uh, Solid Air, or at least selling some records, it all had to be, you know, it all had to be recouped against the advances. They still those. had huge debts, didn't they, after which season yeah. was sold to, to Ireland or whatever? And so John had a kind of lifelong yeah. grudge against Joe Boyd. And also, I think... It, it... He had lifelong <laughs> grudges against a lot of people. He did. No, it, he, he blamed Joe Boyd for his lack of commercial success, which is unbelievably <laughs> unkind, really. And, um, and also Beverly, you know, he, he, I think very unfairly, kind of blamed Beverly in a sense for being part of that. And also, yes, it, it stopped her really from, from making her own records, although John was instrumental in that as well. I think he didn't, certainly didn't encourage her to have a, a solo career. So this this record that I'm holding up for the benefit of anybody mm. who's just listening to this is of course Solid Air. So this comes this comes out what year is this? I can't remember. Seventy three. Seventy three. Which yeah. we all we all think of as being a kind of hit. You know. Mm. Was it? No. <laughs> <laughs> no. It wasn't a hit, but I don't think they were I mean that wasn't the world of hits, was it? But for you know, back then I think it was you know, they were they were the kind of artists who couldn't sell 50,000 records, um, which is a lot of records now, but back then was, you know, kind of below the radar in a way. And um, just toured. You know, John toured constantly. You know, he was always on the road. Um, and he'd go on all the Oakley Whistle Test. And he'd, he'd, uh, well, that's the thing on. I wanted to talk about, because he yeah. everybody, re everybody remembers seeing John Martin on the Whistle Test doing May You Never. And it felt like everybody well, in the world went and bought that record afterwards. Well, clearly they didn't. But quite a lot of the long-haired people in the world, I yeah. suppose, went and bought it. Well, I say in the book, it's almost like the, the David Bowie Starman. It is. Certain, it is. A certain group of very kind of switched-on um, listeners. You know, that, that was like, whoa. And actually, Ralph McTell said, I, I saw that. I ran down to the record shop in Putney the next day. And the guy was like, nah, so would I, mate. Uh, yeah. it's, it's Solid Air's already gone. Um, so it did have that kind of massive impact. And he was very, very cool. You know, I think you hear all that stuff. And he also played I'd Rather Be the Devil, which was the whole Echoplex thing yeah. on that yeah. same show. And I think it was very attractive for a lot of people to see someone doing that just with a guitar. Um, so, you know, he was very much a kind of cult cult artist, um, you know, but, but never sold a huge amount of records. No, and Solid Air, I'm sure it's sold a lot now because it's been a constant kind of catalog. Yeah, yeah, but at the time it wouldn't have been a chart record. But no. you know, it well, wasn't it the same for all of them, wasn't it? I mean, Nick Drake, yeah. who he was great friends with, you know, Nick Drake, virtually no records at all. You know, oh, yeah. John Martin sold a lot more they? records than Nick yeah. Drake. Yeah, a lot. No, he did a lot more. So just very quickly, the Nick Drake section of the book is fascinating. Now, is that an attraction yeah. of opposites? Because I can't think of two more different characters who really kind of wasn't it? Yeah, what was the attraction for each? Do you think kind of weird fraternal kind of? Bond, you know, um, Linda Tom said it was very Greek, you know, it was like a love affair, but just no sex. Um, yeah, it was kind of, he, he had very intense relationships with men, actually, John, you know, very kind of loving and 
tactile relationships with men. I think he recognised in Nick, well, I think he was curious about his music because Nick was so perfect, I think, in the way he played guitar in that trick. You know, it was it was absolutely... Precision. Amazing. Yeah, precision. Yeah. And John, yeah. John was, you know, different every time, bang, bang, bang. It, it was always great, but it was a kind of approximation. Um, <clears throat> so I think he was fascinated by that. I think he, he was fascinated by the fact that Nick didn't seem to care about anything. Um, whereas I think John, <clears throat> excuse me, John was probably quite ambitious and, and did want people to like his music and wanted to be appreciated. Nick Drake seemed not to care about that at all in some ways. Well, he was clearly I, ambitious. He went out and did all the things that Nick Drake refused to do. He went out at one point in the, in the book, he goes out supporting Yes on a tour in America, which is just hysterical because he loathes and detests them, doesn't he? He despises everything they stand for <laughs> and, and the other things as well. Yeah, so he... He makes it his, his mission just to steal their women and their booze and their fish while, while yes are on stage and then just get out of it. And, and that's very John. You know, he, he doesn't try and win this, these audiences over. He's just like, this is my thing. And I just imagine him in the stadium playing these wild echoplex kind of instrumentals yeah. to 30,000 you know, frat boys in, in uh, you know, the Midwest. It must have been wild. So, is he, yeah. do, you think, do you think it's the case that he was one of those performers who was kind of frightened of being a success, mm. really? That, you know, if he sensed that he, he could easily have had a kind of gun in a Ralph Mattel, Al Stewart route, couldn't he? With things like May You Never. But he, he just didn't dare go down that route, did he? He was always reversing away from, from success. Is that fair? I think that's so true, yeah. I think that's absolutely the case. And there's, there's um, you know, the examples of that, you know, someone else said, you know, he would always sack managers, you know, or if some important big management company came to visit him he'd get completely shedded beforehand. So it, it would just sabotage the whole thing. So I think that's true. You know, so after Solid Air, you would expect him to, to kind of follow that up with a, you know, a similar kind of album and a couple more of those kind of folk anthems that people could play in the folk club. But he always and found ways of blaming other people, didn't he? It was yeah. not his fault. It was, it was Joe Boyd's fault. It was the manager's fault. It was somebody who didn't support him, you know? Yeah, or the musicians weren't feeling it, man. You know, they didn't, they didn't yeah, yeah. tap into, you know, my vision. So... But I think that was a get-out clause. Yeah, I don't. I don't think he ever uh, felt that, and probably just as well. God, can you imagine a John Martin who'd sold five million records? It would be terrifying. How, un- how unbearable would he have become? <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so you know, it's probably self-preservation. As well. Yeah, this is one of those books uh, which could could uh, genuinely be described by the adjective unflinching. Because, you know, you've talked to, you know, his family, you've talked to the musicians who dealt with him. And a lot of what comes out is not a very pleasant person at all. Mm-hmm. You know, tell us about that. Well, I, I want, I, you know, yeah. I mean, I was aware that, well, I think we're, li- you know, we're living in a kind of moment now culturally where you, the kind of roguish rock star behavior is probably worn a little bit thin. You know, I don't think we can just kind of dismiss it as hijinks and, um, you know, he he damaged people pretty seriously throughout his life. He, he damaged himself as well, but, you know, certainly inflicted a lot of damage on people. So I, I did want to be completely honest about that. And I was lucky, I think, that the, the people who were very close to him were really honest about it too, um, without kind of throwing him under the bus. You know, I think that, you know, there's a lot of affection still there for him, a lot of love for him amongst the people who were close to him, but they were they saw him very clearly. And, you, you know, you don't end up the way John Martin ended up. You don't end up with one leg and, and you know, at 55, he was a bit of a ruin when I first met him. And um, it doesn't happen by accident. You know, there has to be something going on there. And so I, I did want to be completely straight about that. And I was very clear with people I spoke to that, you know, I did 
I'd encourage them to be as honest as possible without yeah. any sort of agenda. No, it's very that. unvarnished, the whole account, and it's very, yeah. very honest. And, and you don't, you're not judgmental at all. It's just factual yeah. reporting on the kind of some of the monstrous yeah. things he did. But did, yeah. it, did it change the way you felt about him? I mean, uh, how did that affect you doing all that research? Didn't, I mean, it, there, were, there was a few things. I mean, there are a few things that aren't in the book. Um, but I think, you know, you get the picture um, of his behaviour. And, um, you know, I'd go back to the music. If it had gone a little bit too dark, I would listen to the music and kind of remind myself that, um, you know, he was a very rounded human being in, in many ways. And for all that he was monstrous and, and you know, uh, aggressive and violent and abusive, which he was, he also made really beautiful music at his best. And, and I mm. think that was also a reflection of who he was. He could be very warm and loving and, and um, all those other things. You know, he's, it's not a black or white situation. I didn't want it to be that, you know, just to say this is a kind of uh, either or scenario. You know, he, he was a very complicated guy. So as much as I, I don't want to judge, and I don't want to whitewash and I don't want to dismiss anything that he did, I, I did want to make sure that people kind of understood that there was many sides to his character. When did you first meet him? A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Well, it's all, it was all thanks to you guys. It was, it was 2005. Um, I was on a word mission to um, Thomastown and Kilkenny. I think there were some reissues. I think it was reissues of Stormbringer and The Road to Ruin that were coming out. So I went over there to meet him. Um, and we spent the afternoon in the, in the beer garden of the pub. It's actually, you know, the prologue of the book. I remember yeah, the piece very well, yeah. And he was yeah, still, still drink, drinking huge amounts, very much kind of hail fellow well met, wasn't he, at the bar? Yeah, it was, yeah. A, it was a, you know, pints of cider, quadruple vodkas. And then breakfast. Yeah. The vodka would go in the cider. Oh. Um, and a cheese toasty just to, you know, for, for ballast. And, um, you know, <laughs> that, was a, that was lunch, you know, that was lunchtime. And uh, he seemed unaffected by that. But so that was the first. That was the first time I met him. And did a kind of major, major interview with him for you guys. And it was brilliant. Um, and he was, you know, very charming, very charismatic, very engaging, very, very bright, very funny. Um, 
but you know, underneath that all, you kind of looked at him and thought, Jesus, you know, because it was Stormbringer we were we were talking about, and yeah. you, know, you contrast the the beautiful the angelic yes. guy, in the angelic, I know, backlit like guy. a halo, yeah, yeah, to this really kind of diminished um, human. Yeah. Uh, what, so, what, one of the things that uh, that struck me uh, most about the book is he always seems to find another woman to look after him. But mm-hmm. he's you know, he's screwed up so badly with the last one. You think that's it for the female sex? You know, mm-hmm. this ruin still manages to get people, and they effectively look after him, don't they? Yeah, they become carers, don't they? Really, they do um, the one at the end. I mean, my goodness, yeah. it's just twenty four hours a day, just sort of. You well, know. he doesn't have a house by that point. You know, I remember him saying, you know, September the eleventh, nine eleven, which was his birthday, fifty third birthday, and he gets a summons, you know, for um, repossession or whatever it is, and he. So at this point, he's he's living with Teresa, his last partner, and in, in that's why he's in Ireland because he, he really has nowhere else to live. Um, and you know, it's, it's old school. It's, it's gig by gig, you know, week by week, cash by cash, uh, check. You know, it's 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 that old Yeah, yeah totally. uh, nothing strategic about John Martin's uh, career, but always someone there to kind of mop up the mess because, as I say, he could be very charming, very charismatic. And I think when you have those songs in your armory that you can pull out and play to people and play to women. Um, you know, there's always someone who's going to probably, uh, you know, help you out. So uh, what, what surprised you most in in researching this book? What did you find out that, that made you think about him differently? Um, I mean, his childhood, I think, was very interesting. I didn't really know the intricacies of that uh, in terms of how, how young he was when he went to live with his dad and, and kind of how messed up he was, I think, by, um, you know, his mother not being around. But also, you know, there was a, there was another child. I discovered there was another child that he had uh, in the late 70s, the early 80s, that he completely abandoned. You know, it was a really, really sort of tragic story. And this, this, this child, when it's in his teens, wants to come and is interested in coming to meet him. And he just says, tell him I'm dead. You know, this sort of, this absolutely cold refusal to look forward. Um, and also, well, well, at least Scratch Perry. I was going to show you my... Um, All right, go on, man. Oh, oh yeah, One World. Which I was, yes. play, I was playing only yesterday after having read your book, and I'd, I hadn't played it for years. It's a fantastic record. It's so I interviewed Lee, Lee's on it. He's not actually credited on it, but he, the, the song Big Muff um, is a Lee Scratch Perry kind of production. And I interviewed him for the book, and he signed it. I don't know if you can see. He said, Love OK, Lee Scratch Perry. Right. But, uh, you know, I don't know if you've interviewed Lee Scratch Perry. It's a, it's a fairly... Uh, <laughs> I'd love to. <laughs> Although you get nothing out of him. No, uh, it took me about three months to transcribe it, but it, it was probably worth it. But he, what was interesting was he didn't know that John was dead, so I, I had to break the news to <laughs> oh my goodness. Lee Perry. Because I said, you know, let's talk about John Martin. He went, oh, how, how is John? I said, well, he's, he's dead. Um, and he went, oh. You know, he took it with, he took it on the chin with equanimity. Um, uh, but you know, he he was a very um, very interesting interview, and um, so yeah, so so that was kind and of and that was the period when, he, when Chris Blackwell got him to go over there to kind of decompress, didn't he? And say, come to Jamaica, um, drink some rum, come to Kingston, sit in a deck chair, smoke some weed, and meet Lee Scratch Perry. And actually, it worked. I mean, it did work, didn't it? It suited him. It got him out of that rut, I think, because you know you had Sunday's Child and Live at Leeds, and he's he's doing the you know the echoplex and the acoustic guitar, and I think he's probably realizing that it's starting to run out of road a little bit. That yeah, 
Uh, and Chris Blackwell, I think, so astute and comes out of the book, I hope, quite well because he's always kind of there to encourage John and to, you know, extend his patience to him much. Oh, longer. he's always saying there's a house on my estate you can live yeah. in. It's amazing. A proper music man. So John goes off to, to Kingston in Strawberry Hill, which is where Bob Marley had recently been, you know, holed up after being shot. And, um, and he kind of formulates this record, which becomes One World, and he works with Lee Scratch Perry, and he, he appears on a number of reggae records that were recorded at that time, most of which no one quite, you know, the credits weren't, weren't nailed down, so we're not quite sure what they're on. <clears throat> and he's paid in, you know, pornographic movies and, and uh, liqueurs and, and fake American dollars, and he has a great old time, and he kind of revitalizes them, and he comes back and makes One World. And, and then Lee, Lee Scratch Perry comes over to Chris Blackwell's uh, farm in Reading, and spends a day just kind of twisting knobs and, and, and working on this song, Big Muff. Um, we, we made Big Muff and we had Big Puff. That, that was his quote um, <laughs> of working practice um, at the farm. Um, it's about as much the guy of him, actually. But, uh, but it was great. So I think that's, and it's kind of telling about John. He was never content. I can't imagine Ralph McTell working with uh, Lee Scratch Perry. You know what I mean? The, no. Not to put him down, but there's always that that kind of need to sort of push things a little bit further than he needed to. Maybe. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, so tell us about the, you know, the, 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 the last years of John Martin, which were singularly tragic. He lost a limb. Mm-hmm. Well, that was a combination it. of it, really. Yeah, I mean, the, the, he, you know, losing his right leg below the knee was the end of sort of 15 years of just, you know, his body being completely battered by by various things, including a cow, which kind of splattered into his windscreen in Scotland. You know, so he... But wasn't that because he was he was driving, if I remember right, he was driving kind of drunk, but and he decided he still wanted to carry on driving. So he thought if he turned the car lights off, the police wouldn't see him. Wasn't that right? He was driving, I think, in the dark and, and just hit a cow. Yeah, not far from here. And, and he didn't have a license. So he, <laughs> he wasn't legally allowed to drive. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, he, you know, he was coming down the country lanes back from whatever pub he'd been in and uh, hit a cow. He, you know, he impaled himself on a fence post and, and punctured his lung. He had pancreatitis. Um, you know, lots and lots of things. You know, broke toes. Um his fate, I mean, when you saw him up close at that time, um, it was this kind of roadmap of just destruction, you know, self-destruction. So um, he was very, very much diminished. And, I, and at that point was, a, you know, a, a helpless alcoholic. You know, I mean, he took pretty much every drug going, but I think alcohol was the one that really got his claws on him. And his daughter certainly thought that. And, you know, she said to me, that, you know, if there was a time when John could have sorted it out, um, when he got his leg amputated, you know, that would have been a point where, most people might have gone, well, hang on, maybe, you know, it's time to curb my appetites a little bit. And he maybe could have cleaned up a bit, but it, he wasn't built that way. You know? He never he, modified his behaviour at all. He just nothing know, made him change. He would, I, he would I, water I, his wine, you know, his water his yeah. wine at breakfast if he was slowing down a bit. You know, but it, it, Right. Well, it's, while we're talking about the drink, I'm very grateful to your book for the information that from Linda Thompson that back in the day, Richard Thompson was the one who could drink everybody under the table. I'd never heard of this side of him before. You know. Hollow She's, legs. Hollow, hollow legs, legs. yes. Yeah. Yeah. Can you imagine? I, I can't you can't it. imagine. You cannot can't imagine even... that at all, no. Uh, but, of, course, but... of course, he converted to Sufism, and but... I guess that all, all went out the window, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So he clearly hasn't had a drink for a long time. No. While, we're, while we're talking about the drink, I think... 
I think, Alex, I think we've got Keith, who's got a question about uh, about John Martin's actual drink intake. Yes, he says, there were two pint glasses on his monitor, allegedly filled with port and red wine, both finished during the show. Can you confirm that that was the case? Port and red wine? But, but, yeah, almost certainly. I mean, he drank these extraordinary combinations as well. He drank, he drank rum and orange. Has anyone ever heard of rum and orange? Oh, oh yeah, that's 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 awful, isn't it? Yeah, I have. It's the seventies. Rum thing, and orange. It? Yeah, uh, cider and vodka, port and what was it? What was the mixer? Port and well, that was port, port and port, red port, wine. Port, but the point port. is, they were pint mugs. So to drink yeah. a pint of port or a pint of red wine would be fairly uh, fairly relaxing, wouldn't it? I would have thought. Yeah. I mean, he went, when he was in hospital, you know, there's great stories about people going in to visit him, you know, completely straight, and they'd come out absolutely smashed. Yes. Because, <laughs> you know, he'd have, you'd have two-litre bottles of Coke filled with Bacardi with a little bit of Coke, and he'd have one of these builder belts, you know, that you get builder belts for putting tools in, they'd just yeah. full of milk. Um, so, yeah, I mean, port and, port and wine, certainly, no problem at all. Um, there's a great, I've got to show you a little postcard I got from his, one, of his, one of his many managers, um, Sandy Robertson, and this is um, oh, an Anton Corbyn photo. Anton Corbyn's wonderful. Yeah. Picture. And he just wrote a little thing on the back, and he, and he wrote, "Looks like fun, eh?" <laughs> <laughs> and that was his comment on uh, managing John Martin. Which well, isn't there a bit? For. Isn't there a bit in the book where he stops managing John Martin because he just can't deal with it any longer, and then gets a call about a week later saying, "Oh, I'm you know in Europe, and I just want to check that you've sorted out my travel insurance or my health insurance, whatever." He said, "No, he John, I don't manage you anymore. Stop ringing me." He's like, John, you actually attacked me in a hotel room in Chicago and broke two of my ribs. We're finished. And John's in, he's in Nassau, actually, in the Bahamas, and going, yeah, my health insurance, Sandy, is it all sorted out? And uh, Sandy's like, not my job now, mate. You know, someone else has got to do that. And so, I'm sure someone else did. But Sandy, yeah, he lasted about two years and just, uh, you know, it ended in fisticuffs and um, rancor, I think. But uh, that was his comment. Looks like funny. And I was like, yeah. <laughs> What is it about the music you think just, just is still so enduring? Because it still sounds fabulous. What is it that you find so attractive? I think it's it's um, there's a few things. I think one thing he did brilliantly was he made he made records. You know, where lots of other people from that generation, and you know, from the folk clubs nominally, maybe just brought their show into the studio and, and were content to just play the songs. You know, you listen to Solid Air, and it's a it's a proper record. You know, it's produced, it's it's arranged, it's got wonderful textures on it. And so I think it endures in a way that lots of other records don't. Um, and just the fact that he brought in so much other material, you know, you know, kind of free jazz, you know, the whole Echoplex thing is so interesting because it's what, you know, a guy who's playing the guitar and, and thinks I'm on stage on my own. That's not going to change. I'm not going to get a band. How do I change the sound of what I do? How can I kind of expand the limitations of one man and an acoustic guitar? And so, you know, he, he develops this incredible... Which The Edge must have borrowed from heavily, you he suggested. Listened to, and he yeah. did, didn't he? Chris yeah. Blackwell might have yeah, put a few copies of something under the door. Right. The, the <laughs> he probably did, that's right. I think, I think you say that his best-selling record was one of these two, wasn't it? That I'm... What have I got? Well-kept secret yeah. and glorious fool. Which one was they? One of these it, was a top 20 album. Well-kept secret, I think, got to number 20. Um which is probably one of his weakest records. This was his time when he was making these kind of strange sub-Phil Collins kind of shiny uh, commercial soul records. Um, and that was, his, that was his, his biggest chart placing, yeah, number 20 in the early 80s. Um, 
I suppose, I suppose that's what happens when you get a big record company working on your behalf rather than a small one, isn't it? They get you into the shops, don't you? So well, if there Danny is any said, Yeah, Danny said, you know, I got a call from his manager going, you know, you're out. We, we, we want him to be the new Van Morrison. We want him to play this kind of with a band. But he seemed to be behind that. I don't think John would have done anything he wasn't kind of massively, um, you know, into musically. So I think there was a part of him that quite fancied wearing the suit and, yeah. Like in the hair back and yeah. playing these kind of. So, Van Morrison is the obvious parallel, isn't it, really? You know, they're very. I mean, Van Morrison, legendarily difficult, not as difficult as John Martin, I think it's fair to say. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, did his own thing. But Van Morrison, you know, A, he's still with us, uh, and B, he can still play big halls, can't he? You know, with it, and he's never bothered to chart anywhere, really, has he? You know. No. What is, what is it about John Martin that, that meant that that was impossible for him, that kind of success? Well, I think, you know, Van's quite, he's quite conservative musically, isn't he? You know, he, he, he sticks to kind of blues and folk and soul structures. John, especially in that period in the 80s, it's really strange music. You know, it, it's very kind of discordant. and um, Very experimental. Yeah, the textures are really it takes weird. takes a huge um, amount of getting used to. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I think, I think he's much further out there than Van Morrison. I think if he had just played the game and his voice was so beautiful, you know, if he just played simpler songs, perhaps, and, you know, turned up and you could guarantee that he would play a good show every night. I mean, some of the shows, there's that great story about him. I think it's the Mean Fiddler 1987, where he, he, he comes on three hours late, plays one song, vomits into a bucket on the side <laughs> of the stage, and then departs, you know. And I don't think Van's ever done that. So, you know, I think... <laughs> Fair. People had their fingers burned by John Martin, and I, I, as, as time goes on, you see less and less people, I think, willing to stick their neck out for him. Yeah. Um, so the kind of industry support wasn't there. Yeah. So looking back on you know his all his records, what's the one that you think people should go back to and uh, you know to to experience the full majesty of John Martin? What's the one that you yourself would recommend? I think. Before he kind of lost his innocence in a way, you know, Bless the Weather for me is, in terms of the songs, um, there's something very pure about that record. Um, you know, it's not the most innovative musically because he hasn't sort of developed a lot of the things that he would go on to do in the 70s. But there's something, he's still only, what, 21, I think, when he made that, you know, he's incredibly yeah. young. He looks fantastic. And there's a real, it's almost the kind of English side of him, you know, that side we talked about from his mother's side, you know, that sort of Surrey, um, that rural kind of green England side of him, which I find very attractive. You really hear it on that record, going down the river, you know, those kind of songs where he's really touched, he's really tuned into a very kind of elemental thing. And so it, to me, it's a sort of time before he, he turned into something different, something a bit wilder maybe, but, but that record's very kind of pure. Right, uh, right, right. And you should mention that there are people, there's people, um, various folk musicians, Corrine Polwood and various others, who are doing wonderful covers of his songs <laughs> to promote your book, to, to coincide with its, its publication. They are, yeah, thanks, yeah, Mark. Yeah, yeah, we commissioned five artists to do um, pick a cover of, of a John Martin song, film it, and, and, and we put it up uh, via Folk Radio, which is a web, uh, an online uh, website. So it's wonderful. Yeah, I mean, we've got some lovely versions of... Um, from One World, but could, Couldn't Love You More, which Corrine's done, which is up today, and Fine Lines, which is another lovely song, a couple coming tomorrow from Solid Air. Um, people do love his music, you know. It's, uh, he, he is someone, I think, who, you know, not a huge amount of people 
are tuned to John Martin. But when people are, I think they, they really do love him. He's probably he's probably one of those artists who probably his popularity is probably growing steadily. You know what I mean? But, but, you know, yeah, it's kind of like Nick Drake and all those things. You know, because there is a there is a, a public for that kind of thing, and it's not all old gits like me. You know, no, these people in their 20s and 30s are drawn. Completely. Nick Drake was adopted by a whole generation of teenagers and people in their early 20s. I mean, that's what the, the good thing about Nick Drake is that it's a very slim catalogue, isn't it? And it's it's very yeah. neat. Yes. And yes. the story is very It's a perfect well. catalogue. Yeah, you can't yeah. go wrong with it. There's no Drake. bad record. That's no right. Bad, no decline. Three years. Whereas, you know, John's had a huge kind of messy explosion of, of lots of different um, yeah. type of music. But, you know, Solid Air, we saw it kind of in the 90s, you know, with this whole trip hop thing. You know, Solid Air sort of got picked up as the extension or, or the, the, the foundations of a lot of those, you know, Port's Head and Massive Attack, you can hear the same kind of rhythms and the same kind of atmosphere, I think. In yeah, yeah. So it would be nice, I think, if more people, because it's very fresh, you know, they, they're quite timeless sounding records. Those good records in the 70s, you know, the best ones are still pretty. They are, pretty they ridiculous. are, yeah. they are. Well, look, it's a fantastic piece of work. Small hours, Graham Thompson, uh, The Long Night of John Martin, and I thoroughly recommend it to to anybody. Anybody who's a fan of John Martin, but also anybody who's interested in the kind of... (laughs) Yeah, there you go. It's it's all all three of us. All three of us. But anybody who's interested in the kind of psychology of performers uh, and, you know, why they're not always the most pleasant people. And that can be part of the deal, you know, in, the, in what makes them great artists. Uh, it's really well examined there. And I think it does, does a really good job. What are you working on next, Graham? Nothing at the moment. No, I'm, I'm taking a little... <laughs> Twiddling his thumbs. <laughs> yeah. I'm, taking, I'm taking a little break in his study in, <laughs> at home. Yeah, yeah. Um, it took a while, this book. You know, it took longer than I thought it might because it, it, for some of those reasons you just said... Well, you, know, you talked to so many people. I mean, you know, you tracked down yeah. ex-wives and children and an immense number of people who worked with him, all those people who influenced him in the early days. It was yeah. a really thorough, comprehensive thing. Like, is it, just, yeah, just, just trying to kind of get him, you know, get him, get it right. You know, it, it, yeah. it's when someone's that kind of complicated and quite extreme, you just, you don't want to... Yeah, you want to try and get it right. So I'm taking a little break from, you know dark side of the street okay <laughs> that's a good that's a good place to end that's a good place to end thanks very much for everybody who's been with us and uh thanks very much to graham and this will be um, going up on youtube and uh, and as an audio podcast in in the next uh, in the next few days uh so Brilliant. it'll be you know out there all the very best graham Cheers. Very good. Thank thanks Love graham very much bye see you soon bye. this podcast was brought to you by the word Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Listen to this ACAST show ad-free on Amazon Music with your Prime membership or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.